Thanks for reading the word, Brian. Good morning, Park family. Good morning. Amen. Uh, well, my name is Lee Grander. It's my joy to serve as a pastoral resident here at Park uh, and also to open up the word with you this morning. If you haven't been with us uh, in the past couple weeks, we're in a sermon series on Exodus, as the uh, slides and, and short video just explained. Uh, we're going through this book uh, called Exodus, the second book of the Old Testament, and it's going to take us throughout the entire summer, uh, and it's titled Set Free to Live Free. If you're new, we're glad that you're here. We kicked off the series uh, so far. We've been in chapter 1 and 2 where we uh, had heard that God has not forgotten his people even though they have been subject, uh, subjected to slavery and in bondage by the Egyptians. Last week in chapters 3 to 4, uh, we have also just seen that God is with his people. And ultimately his presence would be the remedy for Israel's oppression. This week. We are covering Exodus chapter 5 all the way to 11. 5 to 11. You got that right. Looking at the plagues. And we're going to see the first nine of them in the sermon today. Specifically what they reveal about God and what they reveal about us. Before we go any further, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you and we pause. God, we recognize that this morning our eyes opened, our hearts beat. And our lungs were filled with air because you gave us good gifts and you sustained life itself. God, this morning we pause because we recognize that we haven't come today to hear from a man, but we've come to encounter the living God. So God, I pray as, as your people, we would come to your word with ears to hear. God, we would come expectant to meet with you, to hear from you, to be built up and sent out. So, Father, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said before, we're in Exodus chapter 5 all the way to 11. Uh, so that's a bit of a text. Uh, so what I need from you guys is to uh, belt up, put your seatbelts on, because we're going to go fast through some of these things. And I need you to let me know that you're ready. Are you ready? All right. Starting in chapter 5. The key verse of our entire text is chapter 5, verse 2, which was already read this morning. Moses and Aaron share with Pharaoh what God had said. They say, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, and this is the key, this is the key. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. See, in Egyptian culture, the pharaohs would view themselves as God. They'd view themselves as God. And they would also have all of these other gods that the people of Egypt would put hope in for things like agriculture, fertility, blessing, etc., etc. The Egyptian people would look to these gods for life. And while this text was written a few thousand years ago in a culture much different than ours, it is extremely relevant for us today. Though outwardly we don't confess like Pharaoh that we view ourselves as God, though outwardly we don't worship other small gods, inwardly in the heart 
the question still remains. In our text, Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord? And our text this morning is revealing three ways of who, uh, in three ways, he's revealing who the Lord is. First, the Lord, he is God alone. You see, after Pharaoh rejects God's command, he puts a harsher burden on the Israelites. He makes them go get their own straw as they're making bricks. And Aaron and Moses, as you'd imagine, are pretty upset about it. What they get is a pep talk from God, as well as a first sign in order to reveal to Pharaoh who the Lord is. This is before the plagues. We haven't even gotten there yet. God says, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. And as impressive as it was when it happened, Pharaoh's magicians recreated this act by throwing their two staffs on the ground, which became serpents. However, the staff that Aaron threw down swallowed the other two serpents. Before the plagues, in Exodus chapter 7, it's being revealed that there won't be a contest between anyone else and God alone. Because the Lord alone is God. These magicians pop up throughout the story a few more times. And by their secret art, they would recreate the first plague, turning water into blood in chapter 7, verse 22. And in the second plague, they would recreate the uh, frogs coming up onto the land in chapter 8, verse 7. However, in chapter 8, verse 18 to 19, in the third plague, the plague of the gnats, God's word says this, the magicians tried by their secret art to produce gnats, but they could not. Not only was the tide turning, but the magicians would also confess to Pharaoh that this must be the finger of God. The plagues, whoever was causing them, must be above every god. But, heart, but the heart of Pharaoh was still hardened. The magician's final appearance would come during the sixth plague, the plague of the boils, breaking out in sores on men and beasts. In Exodus 9, verse 11, God's word says, The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils had come upon the magicians and upon all of the Egyptians. The Lord, who alone is God, has no rival. How could you rival the Lord who had control of all creation? That's what the plagues are revealing. And while we don't have time to look at each of them individually, I want to give an overview and then narrow in on the first plague. The plague showed that the Lord was in control of the water, animals, insects, the ground, the weather, the sun, and next week we'll see that he's in control of life itself. Now let's take a look at the first plague in Exodus 7, verse 17. The Lord says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Verse 19, he says, This is what you should do, Moses. Take your staff and stretch, it over, uh, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the, over the rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. This is the first plague. 
resulting from disobedience and unrepentance. The disobedience and unrepentance of Pharaoh. Now it's important to know this too. The Nile was the source of life. It was the source of life for the Egyptian civilization. And in this first plague, the Lord is attacking what people look to most for life and hope. In a way, God is reminding the Egyptians that he alone is God. He alone is in control of the water. Not some Egyptian God who they may have worshipped at the Nile River. He's revealing that he alone is to be looked for, looked to for life and hope. Instead of repenting at the power manifested by God, what the Egyptians did was in verse 24, they began to dig ditches to get drinking water. When we are unrepentant and disobedient towards the Lord, we are cutting ourselves off from a greater source of life than the Nile. Cutting ourselves off from the Lord who alone is God. We often find ourselves in unrepentance and disobedience, digging wells, digging ditches like the Egyptians. We find ourselves putting in so much energy and effort for these lesser things. We put so much work into seeing happiness. We seek after joy and comfort. And we pay a pretty penny for these things because we hope that they might bring us something. Happiness, joy, comfort. What ends up happening is we don't even take time to rest. We don't take time to rest because we're too busy. We want more power at work. We want more influence in our social groups. We want to be praised by others. We were made to find these things, happiness, joy, comfort, and rest in him and the Lord. The reality is, if we would just confess our sin to God, admit that we have disobeyed him, we could have access to the source of all happiness, joy, comfort, and rest. Turning to God seems hard work, seems like hard work when our heads are so deep in our own ditches. But repentance of our misplaced hope, rejection of God, and disobedience toward him is like trading a dirty ditch for the expanse of the Nile River. The second revelation of the Lord. He alone is judge. In Exodus 6.6, one of the verses we also read this morning, God says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. A friend of mine and I were talking, and he reminded me of this common phrase that we often use in our culture. I wonder if you guys have ever heard it. He said, a lot of people say, you can't judge me, only God is my judge. Anybody? I've heard it quite a bit. This friend of mine was actually reflecting on how intense of a statement that was. He said something like, I hope they know what a fearful thing it is that God is going to judge us. Quoting Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, my friend said, he demands perfection. To be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To be holy like he's holy. 
Judgment is something we don't like to talk about when it comes to God. The reality is God alone is judge. All the plagues, turning the Nile to blood, sending frogs to invade the land, causing gnats to inhibit the land on man and beast, sending flies, sending a plague to kill the livestock, bringing a deadly hailstorm, causing locusts to cover the face of the land, and causing darkness in the land is all a mighty act of judgment against sin. We don't like to talk about judgment that much because we don't want to admit that we have sinned. We don't want to deal with the awful truth that we have turned away from our Creator. But here, God's judgment is actually to free God's people from the burden of slavery. If you go back and read Genesis 12, 3, what you'll find is God is actually here in Exodus just working out an old promise that he's already made. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. This judgment is actually great news for God's people. With God's judgment comes freedom from slavery for them. But this judgment is also terrible news for those who are not God's people. Those who willfully continue in disobedience and unrepentance. But in this text, there is even some good news for the disobedient and unrepentant. See, even Pharaoh is given an opportunity to repent and obey. In six of the nine plagues, God gives Pharaoh an opportunity to let his people go. A chance to humble himself before the Lord, who is God alone. But for Pharaoh, we'll see that fake repentance doesn't work. Take a look with me at Exodus 10, verse 16. As the plagues continue to destroy Egypt, plague after plague, and Pharaoh has been given chance after chance to repent, there is this glimmer of hope for a few seconds. He says this, Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God to only remove this death from me. Right? It looks, it looks good. It looks good. He's finally confessing his sin. But then we look down at verse 20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he didn't let the people of Israel go. I understand the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart is difficult to comprehend. And this tension is one we need to live with. It can't be simply explained away. This text reveals two things. That God is totally sovereign and in control. And at the same time, we are totally responsible for our actions. It's a tension we must live with. Here, Pharaoh confessed that he sinned against God. But then he didn't let the people of Israel go. I want to ask a specific question, a rhetorical question. And the question is, how many of us have confessed or acknowledged that we've sinned against God? And it was merely lip service. How many of us have confessed or acknowledged that we have committed an offense against God, but we haven't turned away from that sin? 
This is a really scary part of the text. One that kept me up at night, one that I was on my hands and knees praying over. Pharaoh says he sinned, but ultimately the plague, the plagues would continue to come because his repentance wasn't genuine. God's judgment continues on those whose repentance isn't real. This is why it's a fearful thing when we say, you can't judge me, only God is my judge. What's worse? We may even have some sort of confidence about us that we're safe from God's judgment because intellectually we acknowledge, right? Jesus has saved me from sin. I, I repented of my sin. I don't need to be worried about the judgment of God. And the reason the text is scary is because if our repentance isn't genuine, we will not be safe from God's judgment. Have you acknowledged your sin against God but not turned from it? <clears throat> Preaching to myself because, again, like I said, this was something that I'm wrestling with. And one of the things I found great hope in is Pharaoh's not asking the question. He's not saying, is my heart hard? So if you find yourself in that place today, that's good news. Preaching to myself, but we need to ask ourselves these questions. Have we acknowledged our sinfulness, our gluttony, our gluttony in binge-watching Netflix, but we're not turning off the TV? Have we acknowledged our sinfulness, our adultery in looking at another man or woman with lustful eyes and not fought to stop doing it? Have we acknowledged our sinfulness that due to greed we have neglected our neighbor's need and have not done anything about it? God's judgment continues on those whose repentance isn't real. <clears throat> and I know this is really intense. So let me say, I totally, I totally get that even believers are fighting the good fight of faith. And it's a struggle. I know it. Hear me say this. I am not insisting that we will attain some sort of perfection on this side of eternity. But I am certainly warning and certainly saying, if we aren't fighting against sin, Turning from sin, if we're living in a fake repentance, simply offering lip service to God, we will not be safe from God's judgment. After this next point, my sermon ends. When we transition into to singing again, we're going to take some time to reflect and recognize any offenses that we've committed against God as a body because it's important. But I also want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to begin a practice if you haven't already. Begin to make it a practice in the quietness of your home in the evening when you think no one's listening. Confess your sin to God. Remember, he's a God who hears. I want to encourage you to literally take time to get down on your hands and knees and say aloud, God, forgive me for merely acknowledging my sin and not turning from it. Jesus, help me to turn from my sin. Repentance 
is an issue of the heart. A reality that Pharaoh is experiencing because his heart is hard. He has a heart of stone, the effect of sin that everyone experiences. What Pharaoh needs, what we need, is a new heart and a God who saves. The final revelation of the Lord in our text is that he alone saves. And there's kind of this incomplete ending of chapter 11, which is the end of my passage this morning. We see the Lord promise something. He says, about midnight, I will go out to the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on, the, on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is, being, uh, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been before or ever will be again. In our text, the judgment is still coming. There is certainly hope for God's people, right? We, we know the ending. But in our text, we haven't gotten there yet. We don't see God saving his people in this passage completely from the burden of slavery and from the Egyptians. But I want to suggest in a way it's beautiful because we do know the ending. We know that God will do it, but we haven't gotten there yet. So what we need to do in this text, like the people, is to trust the promises that God made that he alone will save. In chapter 6, if you want to flip back to verse 6, it's where we began in our scripture reading this morning. God says, I will seven times, beginning in verse 6 and ending in verse 8. Seven times God promises that he alone will act, that he alone will save. Seven times in three verses, it must be important, so listen to what God promises. He said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you from an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He says, I will give it to you for a possession. The promises of God are true. Amen? We've seen that it happens. We can trust in the promises of God. Amen? I want you to notice how each of the promises begins. God says, I will. God's promise in this text will be accomplished by God, not by something that we need to do. We know the end of the story, which gives us hope as we wait for the promises of God, which he has made to us. We know the story will end ultimately with God's judgment of the Egyptians, which will lead to the freedom of his people. The judgment of God on the Egyptians will lead to the freedom of his people. It's like another story that I read in my Bible, the story of Jesus. 
See, our story is much like the one we've read this morning, except we are much more like Pharaoh than we'd like to think. Whether right now or in some not-so-distant pasts, our hearts were hard. We had hearts of stone because of sin. Because our forefather, Adam, we have this heart of stone because he made a way for sin to enter the world which God has made. In sin, we were cut off from the source of life, the source of happiness, joy, comfort, and rest. We were too busy digging our muddy ditches, maybe acknowledging some sort of wrong, but having nothing to compel us to change, to turn from our sin and turn towards the Lord, who alone is God, who alone is judge, who alone saves. To drive home a point, God says in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not even one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. He goes on to say much more, but he says there is no fear of God before their eyes. But God, he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life of obedience to God and went willingly to the cross to take upon the judgment for sin we all deserve. We can at times be fooled to think there's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament God, that one is a God of wrath and one is a God of love. But on the cross, we see the Lord God is both judge, pouring out his wrath and judgment of the person of Christ. And at the same time, he's a God of love who's making a way for his people to be set free. He's a God of judgment and a God of love. He casts the full judgment of sin upon Jesus so that we could experience the forgiveness of sin through faith in Christ. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God's wrath and love are both woven into the cross. This is the message that John the Baptist and Jesus have been preaching since the beginning of the New Testament. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. For the kingdom of God is at hand. When by faith we repent of our sin against God and believe unto Jesus, God gives us a new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit that enables us to turn unto Christ. It's what he promised in Ezekiel 11. He said, I will give them one heart, a new spirit, I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The Lord, he alone saves. I want to finish with the final encouragement to repentance. There's a man named Sinclair Ferguson who has written a 60-page, a really short book that's called Repentance. And I want to encourage all of us to read it supplementally to the Bible. In it, he distills what is involved in true repentance. 
He distills those things down into two, uh, two ways of true repentance. He said, in true repentance, we will recognize that offenses have been committed against God and his covenant he's made with his people. And secondly, true repentance will look like turning away from sin in view of the gracious provision that the Lord has made for us in his covenant. We would recognize the offense and we would turn away from sin in light of the gracious provision that the Lord has made for us in Christ. The reason we repent today is in light of the cross. We have seen the judgment we deserve. It's been poured out on Jesus Christ. We understand the cost and the weight of our sin, which compels us to repentance. If you've been living in sin and never repented, never having experienced the freedom that Christ has accomplished for you, I hope and many of us are praying today that today would be the day. But for the believers in the room, I don't want you to think that you're off the hook. I don't want believers to think I have repented and now I'm good. Matthew 3, 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We, have not only, we are not only motivated once to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus, but it is an ongoing fight. It's a way of life for the believer. Many of us are familiar with the reformer Martin Luther, who's well known for his 95 thesis, the first of which reads, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The life of a believer, he's saying, should be one of repentance from turning from sin and turning to Jesus because he's worthy. Pharaoh asks, who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? What God's word revealed to us is that he alone is God. He alone is judge. He alone saves. And he is worthy of our obedience and worship. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. As the members of the band are coming up on stage and even begin to play, I want us as a body to to take time now, along with David, and say, Search my heart, O Lord. Tell us if there is an offensive way within us. Pray that you would invite the Lord who is God, who is judge, who saves into your heart now to search any place where we might be willfully sinning against God. And you would take time now to repent and to believe.